Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's the wonky show. We're talking... Racism in universities, the graduate premium, students with a criminal record, and financial information in a pizza graph. It's all coming up. How do we expect people to rehabilitate themselves if they're frozen out of education? And I think back to my own time as a student when there was a chap on my course who the university found out he had an ancient, he was a mature student, found out he had an ancient drugs conviction for possession and he was thrown off the course. And it just wasn't clear who benefited. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into higher education, policy, people and politics. I'm Rachel Firth and here to write and sign the extension letter to higher education policy. As usual, we have three superb guests. In Buckinghamshire, we have Director of Higher Education Policy Institute, or HEPI, as it's more commonly known, Nick Hillman. Nick, give us your highlight of the week, please. Well, good morning. I hope it, I hope it still counts as this week, but last Friday, we hosted a conference on value in higher education where our one of our keynote speakers was jim dickinson who you know very well are you saying jim was your highlight of the week I think that's, that's, well that's we got all i'll say is we got very good feedback on jim's session um, and in bermondsey we have chief programs officer at the brilliant club richard Eyre. richard give us your highlight of the week please uh, good morning rachel um my highlight of the week was accompanying nearly 114 year olds um from state schools on a trip to st Catharines college oxford yesterday it's part of one of our programs um and essentially just seeing how excited they were to be learning about university uh, and how proud their teachers were of them finally in wonky hq we have wonky's editor debbie McVitie. debbie give us your highlight of the week please uh good morning well as you know rachel our week has been uh, very full of Wonkfest preparation um, and it's, it's, we're getting sort of more frantic and more, more excited by the day. Um, so I'm going to say the highlight of the week is the whole week because we're just super excited for Wonkfest. This week we start with the release of the Equality and Human Rights Commission report on racism at university. The report tackling racial harassment universities challenge suggests universities are, are unaware of the scale of racial harassment on campus and overconfident in their ability to handle it. Debbie, can you give us an overview of this one, please? Right, yes. So the first thing to say, I mean, this is a big report. It's a serious report. They've done research. They've had roundtables with senior people in universities, and they've obviously worked very closely with the higher education sector, especially Universities UK, who's kind of who's tasked with doing a lot of, of taking the, the recommendations forward. What the report finds is uh, quite a fair, I mean, they, they've done some effort to try and understand the scale of the problem of racial harassment in universities. But one of the things that I think is quite clear coming through is, is that um, instances of racial harassment are highly likely to be underreported. That's partly because the people who uh, might be targeted, who might experience these uh, sorts of incidents, have quite low confidence in university complaints procedures. Um, and the consequence of that is that many universities, particularly those who have fewer ethnic minority staff and students, tend to be a bit more complacent, perhaps, or sanguine about the kind of scale of, scale of the issues that are going on inside their universities. And I think this, this report will be something of a wake-up call um, to all universities, but particularly to those. But where I think the report gets interesting and where I think the kind of the debate has really circled around is this question about how do you understand um, 
racial harassment incidents of racial, har- racial harassment and, and, and behaviours of racial harassment as part of a wider kind of cultural problem of structural racism. And I think what the report does quite well, I think, is is it talks about how microaggression works, about the kind of the the, the kind of the, the small but important ways in which um, ethnic minorities are are excluded, are the victims of kind of jokes or banter or or kind of small aggressions that are kind of hard hard to pinpoint. And I think any any you know it's it, it's sort of and, and, the, and the consequence of that sort of thing is 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 that often people who are in positions of power, you know, in this instance, white people. Um, don't really see it and, and tend to doubt uh, people's account of when it's happened. And you get that sort of gaslighting effect of, you know, are you sure that they really meant it? Are you sure you weren't imagining it? And the kind of consequence, and this is the sort of structural and cultural racism that, that builds up, you know, that has a really, really uh, awful impact um, on people just sort of trying to make their way in higher education and, and, and I think gives a very sort of disproportionate burden of kind of dealing with the, with the consequences of structural racism. Now, the, this is, and this really is where the kind of critique of the report has come in. And, and one of the kind of things that people are saying, I think legitimately, is, is that um, the report hasn't really engaged closely enough with some of the kind of the, the things that um, black academics and black students are talking about in some of those wider debates about things like decolonizing the curriculum, about the way kind of uh, higher education systems are sort of built, built on, on the kind of history uh, of, of racism and, and are sort of structurally racist. Um, and people are particularly unhappy about references to instances of, of racial harassment that are between um, English and, and Welsh and Scottish people. So sort of saying that this is very much not the issue that we're talking about here because that's an issue of, you know, this, the, the power imbalance is very different here um, and you really can't make these, these two things the same. I, I'm always a little bit nervous about talking about uh, issues of racism in the sector when as a white middle-aged man, I've obviously not... Um, been on the receiving end of it but it is a wake-up call it's very salutary I mean sometimes we like to think of universities as being really open really tolerant um, really diverse places and this report reminds us that actually they reflect some of the problems in society as well as some of the good things in uh, society Uh, just um, I mean a couple of thoughts came to mind as I was reading it one was there's probably a much more developed debate in schooling than there is in higher education about how diversity leads to, leads to better learning. You know, actually, the learning of all students can be better if the lecture halls are truly diverse. Um, and secondly, I think one warning point is when a university really grips an issue like this, and it goes for other issues too, you often see a spike in their numbers because they make it easier to report um improper, uh, you know, bad behaviour. And when it's easier to report things, the numbers go up. And I think we need to be careful of not attacking universities that make it easier to report these things, because that is the start of the solution. And you see, yeah, you see with, with, with sexual harassment as well recently, haven't we, the numbers have shot up. And of course, that's not probably not because there's more of it going on. The experience and the perception of the experience and worrying about the experience is something that really affects um, students' experience at university. But it also uh, it's also one of the things that plays into one of the challenges uh, around access, which is people feeling, will I belong? And um, I, I, and I think there are... I think that the thing that came out from this report to me were two strands and at the, at the same time the importance of seeing how they're interconnected but also not not completely conflating the two with each other one of which is about whether you've got uh, truly diverse inclu- inclusive um, uh, higher education institutions which we we don't for the most part at the moment um, uh, and, and making sure that people feel like they belong there but another important part of that was making sure that when as you say you've got either um uh, really avert discrimination um, or um, uh, 
equally important microaggressions that those things are de- dealt with and seem to be dealt with because i think when they're not that is the the sort of thing that creates a climate of of, of students or potential students thinking this isn't somewhere that i'd feel at home or that i'd feel safe yeah just i think th- i think this point and i think it's you know it's completely right um you know we should when we respect you know when we talk about things we, sh- we should check our privilege and we should say you know you know yeah we haven't had direct experience of this and and, and as a, you know as a consequence we're speaking from a particular standpoint and i don't think you guys were saying this at all but you know, one of the things that came through really strongly was this kind of nervousness um, about people just talking about race. And, and and I think there's something here about, if you know, if people are listening to this and thinking, yeah, okay, but what can I do? You know, we, we're in this very, you know, I, I might, you know, you might be working in a very white institution, for example. There are so many great books and websites and people writing in this space who, you know, black academics, black students who who have really interesting things to say. And I think, you know, if if, if one thing comes of this, if, you know, if, if as white people, we'll go off and kind of read these books and, and engage with these kind of criticisms of the HE culture, then um, you know we will we will find it easier. You know we, we, should, we will find it easier to talk about race. We will be coming from a more informed perspective, and we'll be able to kind of I guess begin to get past this sort of discomfort that 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 that, that is fundamentally silencing the, the victims of, of of racial harassment and racism. Because we work in the higher education sector, I don't think we should ever be scared of reading stuff. So I sort of agree with what Debbie said. And one book that has really challenged me, and it probably more challenged challenged me more than anything else I've read about higher education, is Calwin Bopal's book Why privilege she's at Birmingham University and you know it, it as I say as a white middle-aged man it's quite unsettling reading that book and we and it, sorry to plug something the happy itself has produced but we recently produced the white elephant in the room which also has a chapter actually by Calvin in it um, but it, it has some other very interesting chapters about including uh, one by L- from London South Bank about the really difficult conversations you need to have on campus to get to the bottom of these issues and really challenging people's um, uh, long-held perceptions about the world, which may sometimes turn out just to be wrong. Now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hello there, it's James Darunian. I'm a National Teaching Fellow and I work at the University of Gloucestershire, mainly on social sciences. So the uh, the piece which, um, which I've published is looking at uh, National Teaching Fellows and it's basically arguing that Teaching Excellence Framework, that's the TEF, says that teaching is valued as much as research. And in the old days, right at the beginning of um, the National Teaching Fellowship Scheme, the HEA, as was, used to give £10,000 and more to successful National Teaching Fellows. And National Teaching Fellows are those that are judged to be excellent in terms of teaching, by their peers, by other academics. We should be properly financially valuing the excellent teachers that we say as institutions we value. And don't forget, we would love to have your contribution on the site. If you'd like to pitch us a piece, just drop us an email on team at wonky.com with your idea and we will be in touch. Next up, is the graduate premium decreasing? Research from HESA and the Department for Economics at the University of Warwick suggests that the financial return on a degree at age 26 fell eight percentage points in a 20-year period. So, Richard, what is going on here then? Um, thanks, Rachel. This research shows that if you're a typical graduate born in 1970, then by the time you reach 26, so in 1996, you were earning 19% more than 26-year-olds without a degree. But if you were born in 1990, then by the time you were 26, so in 2016, that graduate premium had fallen to uh, to only 11%. 
And that seems to confirm the received wisdom that we often hear that degrees are worth less than they were in the past. But there's a few reasons, I think, not to, to purely take this at face value. So first, as the report itself points out, we're only talking about the difference in earnings at age 26. The report says nothing about how earnings grow throughout someone's career. And we know from research that, that they, they, will con- they may continue to grow past that age. Second, um, in some senses, it's not that surprising that if graduates make up a bigger chunk of the population, their average relative earnings are going to be closer to the overall average. Okay, so again, the, the report says nothing about the impact of studying a, a different subject or studying a different institution uh, on graduate earnings. Um, and third, uh, and and uh, this is the bit that most often gets lost. Third. The value of higher education isn't just about future earnings, so it's important for us to bear that in mind. So overall, um, th- this report is a helpful reminder to me that analyses like this, um, are, are, they're important from an economic perspective. They're important um, f- from that sense. Um, they're really limited uh, for thinking about how individuals make decisions. And in, in some ways, some of the some of the wider reporting about this, not on wonky, of course, uh, but some of the wider reporting reminds me sometimes of the way that health research is reported. I mean, it's yes, it's a contribution to to the the stock of, of knowledge um, about what we know about um, the, the value of a degree, but it's it's it the takeaways for individuals are, are not that clear. It's a very interesting report using some interesting data sets that haven't been mined as deeply as they might have been before. Um, So while I agree with everything Richard said, I think we mustn't lose sight of the big picture. So the results, even where they're lower, are still very positive. So even for the the younger uh, people, the um, graduate premium is still very significant, is the first thing to say. And of course, many of them became adults you know, during austerity, effectively. So it's pretty good that they're still doing very well uh, in the labour market. And the second thing, of course, is that going to higher education is not just about the graduate premium. You know, there are so many other benefits from all sorts of education, particularly higher education, um, in terms of well-being and health and civic participation, that, you know, it's important to know the universities are delivering the skills that employers want but it's also important to know the universities are delivering all the other things that mean you have a fulfilling life. I think, I, I mean, I think, I, you know, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a useful contribution. I think the problem is, is that our framing of these, this sorts of evidence is always about the returns to a degree. So it always gets focused in on the value of a degree. And I'm actually not going to make the case that a degree is, is, is worth more than um, money because I think that's been ably made. But the, I think, Basically, this idea that if if you just make it about the return to higher education, you basically let the wider economy off the hook. And I think you know, just raising skill levels in the economy, which is what which is you know which is what higher education does, is basically says we're going to have more people with higher level skills. It just doesn't automatically raise productivity or indeed grow the economy. You need employers who know how to use graduate skills so that we don't have the problem of graduate underemployment. Um, you need support for entrepreneurialism. Uh, you need uh, you know, infrastructure investment. You need kind of R&D investment. And you need a kind of a, an economy that is thriving so that those graduates can then go in and kind of be part of that and drive it and, and kind of and, and take it forward. So sort of, I guess, blaming higher education for the, and, and we must remember as well, this, you know, the graduates born in 1990 were kind of coming of age at the exact moment that the, you know, the world economy was going into freefall. So, you know, there, there's, there's been 
bigger kind of context here that, that this needs to be situated in. And I think I, mean, I think the report's authors kind of do, do acknowledge that. And, and assuming we're not going to stop people kind of pursuing higher education and or you know the skills that they want and being kind of you know the best person that they can be, the question I think is is about how do we create the economic conditions and, and, and make make kind of growth of graduate level skills part of that so that we can kind of get get the economic growth that's going to contribute to everyone's well-being. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I, I think those are exactly the the points to make. So uh, um, as Nick said, really, really interesting methodology. Uh, the the, um, the authors of the report looked at the British cohort study and the next steps data set, and then they cross-checked them against the labour force survey so that they were able to to understand as much as, as they could about the um, the people that they were looking at, the, the, the graduates and non-graduates that they were looking at. Um, and uh, within the the headline decline from 19% graduate premium to 11% graduate premium they actually said it doesn't it doesn't happen in a smooth line so actually um there's a little bit of a decline from the beginning of the 80s into the mid 80s but then it really drops off for um for people born after 1987 um uh, and when were those uh, people born in 1987 graduating as Debbie says they were graduating uh, most of them in 2008 so they're going straight into the the, the crash um it, it is uh, a uh, David Kernahan in his, his blog on Wonky, I think, puts this really well. And in that, there are it's easy to spin crude narratives, easy narratives about you know too many people going to university, um, uh, degrees being missold. Um, that's that's a really easy narrative to spin. A much harder thing, as Debbie says, to engage with is what does the economy need to be like in order to reduce graduate underemployment uh, and make sure that 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 we we actually get the levels of productivity out of our now you know what is going to be about 50 percent um uh graduate workforce uh, and that's that's much harder like that's uh that, that's a question it's a bit like it's a bit like climate change this it's in some ways it's, it's much easier to attack it but really the question is you know we have a massive productivity crisis in the uk what are, what are we going to do about that and i guess if there was anyone uh who wasn't as invested in higher education as the, the four of us may be uh they may argue that you know, if it was decreasing the graduate premium, we wouldn't be the first people to, uh, you know, admit that. And, and we may find lots of reasons to uh, defend that and other kind of uh, um, external factors why that might not be the case. Um, so I, I guess I guess the point I'm, I'm bringing to the three of you is um, if this was a problem and it was indeed on the decrease, would we ever kind of acknowledge that as a sector and, and address it? Or do you really think the factors, the mitigating factors are... You know, there are enough for me to get um, uh, all of this. Nick, let me bring you in. Well, I think that's a fair challenge. And of course, we should listen to other voices. Um, But let's not forget that even the lower numbers in this report are very positive. So even the people who do less well, the cohort that does less well, are doing well. And so a purebred economist might say, they're actually too positive. It actually suggests the fact that employers are paying, even in the depth of austerity, graduates much more than non-graduates, suggests there still aren't enough graduates. So, you know, I think the argument could be used used both ways. And, you know, as, as I said, a pure economist would say, so long as the return is positive at all, even if it was only 1% positive, that would still suggest employers are willing to pay employers more. So, so I think the argument could be run run either way. Yeah, no, indeed. Final word, Richard. Yeah, I'll bring this back to my point about how useful is it for uh, for people, for students, for parents, uh, you know, for people advising young people who are making a decision. Okay, and what what it comes down to is this. Um, as Nick says, the graduate premium is still significant. And for people who've got the social capital, who've got the, the knowledge, they know that if you get a degree in the right subject from the right subject, uh, university, the graduate premium is much, much higher than um, than 11%. Um, now, 
people you, you, uh, to to the point that you made, Rachel. Uh, people can say, well, you know, wouldn't we say that? Wouldn't we be talking about the higher education sector? Um, I I think it's entirely possible that there are other ways for us to have a really high skilled, uh, high paid workforce that don't involve more people going to university. But I think we'd need to see what they are. And at the moment, at the moment, what we have is a growth in low skill, low wage jobs um, in our economy as a whole. And that that that. It, that crisis of productivity is what we really need to address. And, and saying too many people going going to university is, as Nick says, is you know the, the evidence isn't really there for it. But also, it's not an answer to to the problem. Every week, we are delving deep into the sector's past to uncover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar Mike Ratcliffe, here is the hidden history of HE. The way we organise our curriculum. The way that it's structured into a bachelor's degree and a master's degree and a doctoral degree is a kind of inheritance of the medieval curriculum structure, which in turn is an inheritor of the kind of late antiquity notion of, of what made a good education for um, a, a citizen. The idea was that you would separate the, the curriculum that you would teach to people um, so that they had a general education and then you would go on and develop it. And the way the medieval university worked is that once you attained the master's rank uh, at the university, you could teach anywhere in Christendom. You could take your degree and teach absolutely anywhere. And so the, the ability to take your master's degree was, was seen as the most important thing. And the curriculum was split so that the first three or so years um, uh, you did a, a foundational uh, course. And then in your last three years at university, you would spend your time much more in, in debate and discussion uh, and you would advance your, your study and be therefore in a position to become a teacher you'll be in a position to do that and so the first chunk of the time you've got a bachelor's degree you're admitted to a bachelor's degree and the second part you were admitted to a master's degree all in arts because that was all the thing was it was all general there was no specialization you took the course and this pattern gets um to be the, the stabilising um, organisational factor of both English and Scottish universities. You take the, the course and then, and then you leave it. But the second part of the course starts to become much less interesting when Oxford and Cambridge become more of a place for gentlemen to go. They don't really want to learn how to be able to teach and therefore the, the master's bit um, slowly wanes and therefore um, the ability to come and take the exercises that you need to do slowly falls out of favour. Um, but they allow the the fact that if you're in good standing you can still get the degree of master uh, and so slowly over time the, the requirements fall away uh, and you end up in the situation that you do the first part of your study you get your bachelor's degree and then as long as you don't muck up and you're in good standing you can top that up with your master's degree at the end so we have a situation which confuses some people especially people writing wikipedia entries for politicians uh, that people uh, think that they've studied an ma but actually of course they haven't they've just done what we the rest of us have done a, a bachelor's degree and then a certain number of terms afterwards depending on the arcane rules of the different universities you can upgrade that to a master's uh, so you end up with this strange slightly strange situation um, uh, that sits in place uh, at the start of the 19th century, when the, you know, the universities think it's probably a good idea to reintroduce rigorous examinations, there is an attempt to bring in proper uh, structures for people to get their MAs. But because people have got into the habit of just turning up uh, and graduating, it, it doesn't it doesn't stick. And therefore, all the effort is put in terms of uh, organising the honours level um, and not worrying too much about the fact that people could come back and take their MA. And it becomes you know, atrophied into a bank. But Durham and London, when they set up their universities, they decide they will have exams for the master's degree, and therefore they become an extra exercise that you can come and do at the end. And you go away with your first degree, but if you want to come back and do more study, it is proper study. You actually have to do something to get your master's degree. 
Uh, a little later, Harvard drops. Harvard had gone into the same kind of wheeze. It had inherited this. It decides that that's, that's no good as well. So it also institutes the idea that you actually have to do learning and take exams to get your MA. Uh, you can't just apply for it. So we've continued with this kind of strange setup. It survived uh, the uh, qualifications framework, Oxford and Cambridge, um, except that it's not a degree, it's a, it's a rank inside the university, uh, and generally everyone is, is happy with this. But just as an example of how sometimes uh, we need to look to our, our lawmakers uh, for uh, a, a thorough discussion on these things, uh, in 2011, Chris Leslie, um, uh, MP for uh, a, part, a part of Nottingham, um, brought a private member's bill um, called Master's Degrees Minimum Standards Bill. Um, uh, and the idea, obviously, being that he's going to kill off the MAs at Oxford and Cambridge. So it's one of those private members' days, so there's uh, uh, the obligatory backbench Tory MPs trying to talk everything out. So the, um, David Nuttall uh, is on filibustering duty that day. They've already talked out something about um, equality, so they have another go at talking this one out. Uh, but Chris... Um, sets off to say that time has come to end this anachronism and a growing body of opinion believes it's time to draw a veil over these arrangements. Um, if we set aside the cheeky sense of privilege, even the most battle-hardened defenders of elitism have to admit that the total and utter lack of merit behind this apparently great award is unfair. Surely it is now in the best interest of modern and open Oxford and Cambridge universities for them voluntarily to relinquish this privilege and prove they are beacons of genuine learning and earned distinction. And it's David Willits who gets the reply, the holder of uh, an Oxford MA, of course, um, and uh, declares that interest, of course. Um, I did uh, shell out eventually to buy my MA, he says, in, on the record, uh, in order to vote in the elections for the Chancellor of the University of Oxford and for the Professor of Poetry. As an MA, you have a, a status that allows you to vote in uh, some of those things. Uh, for us to act, we would not only have to be persuaded of the problem of confusion, he says, but would have to take a significant step towards intervening in the internal arrangements of the universities in question. That's where the position of the Shadow Minister rather surprises me. Because my view, David Willits, is that intervening in such a way in the autonomous decisions of the universities of Oxford and Cambridge would go contrary to what I thought was the shared view of both front benches. The view that the autonomy of our universities was one of their reasons for success. Um, and he concludes by saying... Um, Leslie has enabled me to set up my beliefs in a Tory in protecting those institutions and traditions where they do not do anyone any damage. So, there we have the philosophy of the uh, Minister of State for Universities and Science. And obviously Oxford and Cambridge continue happily um, awarding MAs to people, um, and it's a tradition. And, as I said, apart from some people confused on Wikipedia, uh, it does anyone, no one, any harm. Next up, prison education and admission reform for convicted applicants. Ten universities have signed up to a pledge promoted by UPP Foundation and Unlock, which sees institutions make a commitment to offering a fair chance to students with a criminal record. Nick, could you give us an overview of this, please? Yeah, so as you say, this is um, an initiative by ten universities, so only a very small proportion of all universities, but it is, I think, very important. So they ha they're pledging to do specific actions or in some cases not to do specific actions. So for example, they won't ask applicants about their criminal records unless it's absolutely necessary. Um, I think it's a really uh, interesting initiative because how do we expect people to rehabilitate themselves if they're frozen out of education. And I think back to my own time as a student when there was a chap on my course who the university found out he had an ancient, he was a mature student, found out an ancient 
drugs conviction for possession and he was thrown off the course and it just wasn't clear who benefited from that decision so i think this is really important and i hope it's rolled out to more than 10 universities in due course um i don't think it's the be all and end all because what about people rehabilitating themselves starting their rehabilitation while they're still in prison which uh, leads me neatly onto a report that happy is just published about um, how we think uh, it's done with the Open University, how we think prisoners should be able to access higher education earlier than they can now. Currently, you can only get a loan for higher education if you're within six years of release. So uh, some of the most uh, prisoners with the most serious convictions just can't access higher education. Uh, and, And sometimes until it's too late, they've often lost interest by the time they're six years within release. And we know that Prisoners and ex-prisoners who access education have lower conviction rates. So there's also a huge saving, both financially, but also, you know, to society, uh, if people with criminal convictions are able to better themselves, frankly. You know, prison, I know, I know it gets to the heart of the debate about whether prison is should be a punishment or uh, an an experience with some opportunities. And, you know, why can't it be both? Yeah, I mean, pick up on on Nick's last point, because I think there is still this kind of sense in wider society that um, people who are in prison, it's because they're fundamentally bad people and they need to be kept away from the rest of us and they they need to, uh, you know, really, really suffer the consequences of of what they've done. And, you know, not not to downplay some of the kind of terrible things that people... Um, have done that has caused them to be put in prison. But also we know, for example, that, um, uh, you know, prisoners have enormously disproportionate, um, you know, struggles with mental health uh, specific issues. Um, and, you know, and, and and we know that, you know, lots lots of people are presumably in there for things that they kind of did uh, very early in their lives and, and, and at times when they were perhaps, you know, uh, vulnerable or... Um, you know, or you know, there, there may be sort of mitigating things to be aware of, and and so you know, this is my sort of bleeding heart liberal perspective. You know, absolutely as much education as as you can possibly give. And I mean, I remember being absolutely horrified when a kind of a, a justice minister in um, uh, said that we're going they're going to deprive prisoners of books. And I think actually Michael Gove kind of brought it back and said, no, of course we're not going to do that, and brought books back into prisons. But you know, I, I do think there's something really important here about kind of saying, you know, these are you know they, these are people. I mean, people have done bad things, but we we, we need think of them as bad people and the more we can kind of do at the policy level and you know that as Nick pointed out it's good for all of us to um, give people a pathway back into kind of productive contributing society then you know let's let's do that but I realize that that's that's perhaps not you know that's a little bit against the grain of of what sort of society in general seems to think or perhaps what politicians think society in general thinks. Yeah I mean like it's a really it's a really interesting example this I think links back to what we were saying earlier about the the wider value of a degree so um, you you could say that if somebody is in prison, that what you really want is something is to focus on maybe level two qualifications, technical qualifications, things that are going to get them immediately into a job on release. Um, but actually, um, you know, as Nick was saying, this is about engaging interest. And for some people, it might be that that getting them to think differently about themselves and what they can achieve and, and essentially what what their life is for, that having the opportunity to study biochemistry or to study, um, you know, early modern history or, or whatever it is actually engages them and gets them thinking differently about their life, that that could be much, much more powerful in helping them rehabilitate and helping them um, uh, play, a, you know, a valuable role in society and not, um, uh, 
it costs society a huge amount of money, which we, we always got to remember that with, with, with sentencing policies, it costs us an enormous amount of money to incarcerate somebody. Um, and that's just the cost of the state aside to the cost of the individual and their, their family. Um, it does, it, it does occur to me actually that there's, uh, and I'd be interested in what you, you thought about this, Nick, that there's, there's maybe like a, a sort of a tip of the iceberg here when it comes to things like, um, saying, uh, like asking about convictions that, um, you know, some people might be excluded because of their conviction. But there's probably actually a lot of people who just don't apply because they don't want to get into talking about the fact that they have a, a conviction from a fray, for a fray from when they were 19. Uh, what do you think about that? Yes, I, I think that is probably true. And th- I think the media needs to be responsible here as well, because um, we've been working with the Open University on this document, and they deliver more education to prisoners than any other university. And I know that they are very conscious that sometimes when the media talk about really serious criminals having access to education, it's sometimes, you know, it's as if they're living the life of Riley in prisons. Um, but, you know, so we need to be, we need to be sensitive about how we talk about this. Um, and, and one of the things I learned during this process, which is really interesting to me at least, is that, um, it's very hard to deliver education to prisoners because prisoners move prisons very often. So a university that wants to develop a close relationship with the prisoners in their local prison can find that very hard because six months into a course, the prisoner might then uh, be moved to a different prison elsewhere in the country. And that can make the practicalities of delivering education very challenging. And I think the prisons minister needs to think about that. And it's why, of course, the Open University is often the best um, answer. Um, what The other reason why I think this is such an interesting area, and, uh, and I think Debbie and Richard put their finger on it when they were talking about the dispute between Chris Grayling and Michael Gove. You know, both of those people are quite right wing. They're probably on the right wing of the Conservative Party, and they take a very different attitude towards this issue. So for me, the whole rehabilitation, pr- um, punishment, how many people should be in prison debate doesn't seem to be a left-wing, right-wing debate. It seems to be a debate that transcends those traditional political differences. And I, I think that, like that that is because it is such a complex and, and interesting area. Now it's time for yes, but does it correlate? Here to set this week's correlation question is Wonky's Associate Editor, David Kernahan. Welcome to Yes, But Does It Correlate? The podcast segment that writes two letters every week, X and Y. I whiled away a happy hour this week playing with the new Universities UK guidance on presenting institutional financial information to students. There's a number of categories in each pizza graph, and your UK specifies the contents of each category quite carefully. I've plotted the Government Research Income category against the Teaching and Research Expenditure category. But is there a correlation? I, I, I think, um, what, what is it, P? P is probably 0.53, something like that, you know. I think it's R, isn't it? Oh, R then. R squared. R squared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like this, is, this is why we keep DK around. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm not the person to go to for the data stuff. <laughs> I'm not going to give you a figure, but I would say, yes, I think it does correlate and probably even more highly than Debbie said. I, I'm, I'm going to be boring and say I also would say there's probably a, a medium to strong positive correlation. Yes, there is. A surprisingly robust R squared of 0.94, although this dips to a less startling 0.54 if you remove the Russell Group. Government research income covers QR and related funding alongside research council income, central government, local authorities, health authorities and tax credits. Teaching and research expenditure includes academic staff costs and other related expenditure. I've added the total income as the size of the marker. 
data is taken from the HESA finance record and is UK-wide. And where the data does not exist, I've not plotted it. And finally, Universities UK has published a new guide on producing university financial information for students. The guide notes that the majority of students in all nations of the UK believe their university does not publish sufficient accessible information on university income and expenditure, especially on how tuition fees are spent. Debbie, um, I'm assuming you've seen this guide. What did you make of this? I have indeed. Uh, well, we, we remember, so this, come, this guide comes against the backdrop of the Office for Students launch of the Value for Money strategy on Friday, which um, includes kind of the point, the point made quite strongly that publishing information to students about university finances is part of understanding the kind of picture of value for money because students need to understand where their fees are going and they need to understand kind of what uh, what all the things universities are investing in that kind of generate the value that, that they might make a judgment about. So, um, uh, Universities UK basically says, well, you you can, if you show students, uh, it would be easier if I had visuals, but I don't. So, if, you know, if you imagine a kind of uh, sort of a circle of, you know, a proportion of, in- of income of coming from different sources, so some from the government, some from students, some from, you know, endowment and so on. Um, and then you might show a similar circle showing where all the uh, expenditure goes. So we say, well, some of it gets spent on learning and teaching and some of it gets spent on facilities and some of it gets spent on, you know, the vice chancellor's car and, what, you know, whatever you want to put in there. Although I don't think the vice chancellor's car actually features as a, as a heathy financial category. Um, and then Universities UK says, well, and then what you might want to do is, you know, you might want to kind of set the scene a little bit for, uh, you know, understand the kind of wider kind of sector context and the financial risks that are kind of that are um, on, on uh, institutions balance sheets. And, and you, uh, you might want to talk about things like ethical investment strategies and where you're kind of divesting from from kind of less ethical investments. And um, and you might also want to explain things like, oh, well, when we do invest a proportion of student fees in, in access and outreach, so some of your fees goes to help, you know, less, less advantaged students and, and kind of try and explain that whole picture. And I think... This is where it gets a bit, um, you know, questionable. You know, I think I think the kind of the motivation is there, and, and and trying to present this information in a kind of nuanced way is is really sensible. But I sort of left feeling that this would be fantastic for a lay governor or a journalist or you know someone in the community who's trying to understand university finances. I'm not sure it's going to kind of really address the needs of students, but maybe my uh, fellow panelists will disagree. Richard. Agree or disagree? <laughs> it uh, doesn't have to be that arbitrary. No, no, it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I agree. This, this, funnily enough, this puts me in mind of a, a conversation I had um, uh, when I was uh, a student union representative um, about uh, a suggestion at my uh, institution that we should be itemising in the, the bills that were sent out to students um, all of the other money that was subsidising um, the, the, the education um, and experience that students were receiving. This was a very different time in terms of our education funding um, and, and asked whether I thought that was a good idea um, because it would make it you know, a bit more transparent. Um, and my answer at the time was, uh, no, I think it would just annoy people. Um, it would just annoy students to, to essentially be told that they were getting a great deal because really people have a sense of, of whether they're they're getting a good deal or not. Um, the thing that we, we the reason we struggle to see that in, in the current um, funding system is that the complexity of our fee loan repayment system makes it really hard to see what you'd see in a, in a normal functioning market, which is if people think they're getting poor value for money, they go somewhere else. Um, that we don't we don't have the same sort of price signals operating. So as Derby says, like more transparency is good for people who are uh, interested in taking a view on man- value for money. Um, having the data out there and having it presented in a user friendly way has got to be a positive thing. But um, I, I, 
if if the desire is for students to suddenly you know have a very strong appreciation of the value for money that they're getting at a different institution i, I don't think it's going to do that well i'm a lot more positive actually about the initiative um for a number of reasons one is every year in our big survey of students you know three quarters tell us they want much more information about where their fees go and i think that number's already been referred to secondly um i mean we've been pushing the government on this for a long time and um what UK have done is so much better that i mean they published a report six years ago called where student fees go you can look it up online it's still online and it didn't answer the question at all and so although their new publication doesn't go as far as some people including i think jim jim Awonki, wants it goes so much further than anybody's gone before and has some really good case studies at the back and and i agree with richard and debbie they're not 100% of students are going to engage with this information. But you know, you don't need 100% of students to engage with it for it to stimulate really interesting conversations on campus and in, in governing body meetings and in, you know, meetings between the students' union and the university. Um, you know, you just need some really engaged students, staff, and governors to be over this information to have some interesting conversations. And I think it helps because I think, you know, when we had the strikes last year, some students divided their fees by the number of hours they'd missed out and worked out a, a sort of per lecture number and asked to have that money back from the university. But they were forgetting about all the other things their fees pay for. And when you tell students where their fees go, it reminds them that counselling costs money, the library costs money, the students' union uh, and other social spaces cost money, the sports facilities cost money. And then you can have a, a sensible conversation as to whether the money is being divvied up uh, sensibly or not. So that is about it for this week. To find out more about anything we've discussed today, you'll find links on the episode page at wonky.com where you can also leave your thoughts in comments. And don't forget, you can subscribe to us automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show on your favourite podcast directory or you can find the feed that you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. So massive thanks again to our guests Nick, Richard and Debbie, to everyone at Team Wonky for making the show happen. And of course, you to listening to the very end. And until next week, stay wonky. Stay wonky.